0: got a lot of material to cover this morning, so let's jump right in, if you'll open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. In the book of Numbers, we read about the tragic and the devastating failure of the children of Israel. In Numbers chapter 11, we see uh, the heart of the first generation of, of Israelites that were now exposed. They had been prepared as much as people could have been prepared to enter into the promised land. They were blessed beyond all imagination. They had been given privilege after privilege. I mean, think about it. They were given the adoption. They were adopted by God Himself to be His chosen people, His holy nation. They were given the care of God, which means they were provided for, looked after, and taken care of by none other than God Himself. They were given the law. The very Word of God was given to them. They were given the covenant. They were given the hope of the promised land. I mean, not only that, they were given the the staggering hope of the promised One who would come, the coming Messiah and Savior of the world. In addition to all of that, they were given the very presence and guidance of God that led them by day and by night. All of this had been given to the, to the first generation. They had been prepared to march to the promised land and to co- conquer all the enemies that would stand in opposition to them. Their pilgrimage or their march was to be a march of victory, a march of triumph. Instead, instead of victory and triumph, tragedy strikes as their hearts were fully exposed. Instead of having hearts that were filled with the peace and the promise of God, they had hearts that were filled with unbelief, with grumbling, criticism, and complaining. The first generation was not God-centered at all. They were extremely self-centered. This is evidenced by the fact that they rebelled against God within three days of departing for the promised land. Three days. It only took three days for their hearts to be fully exposed. I mean, they had barely begun their march to the promised land. And immediately, they begin griping and complaining against God and against Moses. In Numbers chapter 11, we see a series of repeated acts of unbelief and rebellion that will continue from moving from chapter 11 forward. And so, what begins in chapter 11 continues their tragic rebellion against God ultimately brings about the judgment of God so much to the extent that the first generation lost their inheritance. They they were no longer allowed to enter into the promised land. They were shut out and they were excluded. We need to pay particularly close attention uh, to the lessons that we can see in Numbers chapter 11 today. After all, we live in a world of great negativity We live in the age and the time of constant complaining, grumbling, criticizing, backbiting. No matter where we turn, no matter to whom we turn, it seems as though we are constantly surrounded by somebody who has a complaint. Whether it be at work or at home, whether it be against a, a husband or a wife, a child, Or a parent complaining about an employer or complaining about employees. Whether we're complaining about personal problems, financial problems, hardships, heartaches, disappointments. I mean, can we just all agree that trials and hardships are a natural part of living? That's called life. And trials and hardships will come our way. They will confront each and every one of us. And when they do, unfortunately, for the majority, they will often frustrate and confuse us. When trials and hardships happen, notice I said when trials and hardships happen, not if trials and hardships occur. No, it's when, because it's going to happen. When trials and hardships happen in life, The question should be, how are we going to react in the midst of this hardship or in the midst of this trial? Will we trust our God to help us, to lead us, to guide us, and to strengthen us? Or are we going to gripe and complain about everything that we face, revealing a lack of trust in our lives about the sovereign plan and will of the Father? When you look at Numbers chapter 11, I think it can easily be broken down into two major sections. You have uh, the events that occur in verses 1 and 3. And then you have another series of events that occur from verses 4 through 35. And in verses 1 through 3, uh, the children of Israel were griping and complaining about their hardship, about their difficulties that they were experiencing. When they gripe and complained about their hardships, What they're ultimately doing is that they're revealing a lack of trust in God's plan for their life. And then in the next section, from 4 to 35, they start griping and complaining about their food. And when they gripe and complain about their food, what they're doing is they're revealing a lack of trust in the provision of God. So in this one chapter, the children of Israel are griping and complaining about both the plan of God and and the provisions of God, the the way that he provides for his people. So let's begin with the hardships. Let's begin in verse number one. Verse number one says, now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord heard them, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some at the outskirts of the camp. The people then cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the place was named Taberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So, so remember, the Israelites, they had just left Mount Sinai. They had been at, at, at Mount Sinai for about 11 months. So they just departed Mount Sinai. They just began their march into the promised land. Yet within a matter of days they begin to gripe and complain to the Lord. They're griping and complaining about the hardships they're experiencing as they're journeying to the promised land. So they're openly complaining to the Lord. They're openly complaining about the hardships they're ultimately complaining about the plan of the Father. Their mindset, their attitude, is that the march to the promised land should be a lot easier than this. This is too difficult. This is too hard. Why couldn't God have made this march a lot easier on us? Life was hard. The journey was difficult. And here the people turned their complaints against God. And the Lord heard their complaining. And as a result of their complaining, he was angry. As a result of his anger, his judgment fell upon them. Verse 1 says that a fire was ignited and burned the outskirts of the camp. Notice that this fire, however form it took, perhaps a bolt of lightning or whatever, this fire was definitely from the Lord. And so the Lord brought judgment upon the people, and so the people began to cry out to Moses, and then Moses, in turn, cried out to God for help. Those are verses 2 and 3. Notice that the Lord hears the prayer, and the fire gets extinguished. From the very beginning, the Israelites were revealing the fact that they were very immature in their belief and behavior. Their carnal hearts of unbelief would take over as they complained against God about the difficult journey that they faced. and In fact, this was the sin pattern that the Israelites would follow time and time again. Practically every time they experienced any form of difficulty or hardship, they would gripe and complain unto God. And so the scripture gives us several examples of that. I'll share a few of them with you. Uh, They often would complain about not having any food. In Exodus chapter 16, it tells us in verses 2 and 3, but the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread until we were full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this entire assembly with hunger. They're not even a year removed from enslavement and captivity. And they're looking back as the good old days. They they complained about not having food. Uh, They complained that they didn't have water. Exodus chapter 17. It says, but the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, the, 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 the children of Israel constantly complain. They complain again in Numbers chapter 11. And to show you that they're not done with their complaints and their frustration, we see it again in Numbers chapter 14 as they complain about the trials they face. Numbers 14. And it says, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the entire congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or even if we had died in this wilderness. So why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, that's the point of leader and return to Egypt. Their, their griping and complaining reveals a great distrust, a lack of trust in the very plan of God and the provisions of God. Complaining and grumbling are signs of distrust towards God. It, it reveals a, a terrible unbelief in God's plan, and God's purpose, and in God's provision. When we complain and when we grumble, we reveal hearts of unbelief and distrust. We reveal that we do not believe that God is powerful enough, or, or we do not believe in God's goodness, that we do not, we do not trust in, in, in how he is leading and where he is sending us. We reveal that we do not believe that God is sovereignly ruling and reigning over everything. You see, a trusting heart never gripes and complains against people, against circumstances, and most certainly never gripes and complains against the sovereignty of God. We go back to Numbers 11. We get into verse number 4. So, so now the people uh, are going to complain about their food. I think this rebellion occurs at the very next stop on their journey. All, although the text doesn't specifically tell us that, what we see is that these two accounts are connected together. And so I think it's safe to assume that they go from one place of griping and complaining about their hardships God sends down fire. They, 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 they say, okay, well, that's not good. Let's keep on, on our march. And as soon as they get to their next part of their journey, they learn their lesson not to gripe and complain about the hardships. Oh, well, now we're just going to complain about the food that we have to eat. Whatever the case is, one is left to wonder, how could the Israelites be so unbelieving in their journey? How could they stumble so often when God had done so much for them. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Now the rabble who were among them had greedy cravings. And the sons of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Now, here uh, we see that their complaining was, was stirred up by certain ringleaders in the group. Those individuals are referred to as the rabble who were among them. Rabble is a reference to a a mixed group of people or or non-Israelites who had joined in with the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt. You can read about the rabble in Exodus chapter 12 or Leviticus chapter 24. So they're non-Israelites who had joined in on the march, and they're kind of like the ringleaders to this griping and complaining about the food. And and so here, they've lost their appetite for manna. And don't forget what manna was. Manna was God's miraculous provision for his children on their journey to the promised land. In fact, verse 5 says, We remember the fish which we used to eat for free in Egypt. No mention of hardships, brutality, enslavement, none of that. Just the free fish in Egypt. The cucumbers the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. Notice this next phrase. They say there's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and and its appearance was like that of bdellium. The people would roam about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or pound it in the mortar and boil it in a pot and make loaves with it and its taste was the taste of cake baked with oil when the dew came down on the camp at night the manna would come down with it notice how they refer to god's miraculous provision for them they refer to it as this manna they're speaking with contempt the 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 usage of the phrase this manna is a bitter sarcastic complaint. Here we see the spirit of discontentment, that of dissatisfaction with God's miraculous provision. My how how quickly the the miracle has become so mundane in their lives. So they're dissatisfied in all they have to rely upon is God's miraculous provision and they see that as just this manna the complaining had a terrible and powerful influence among the people it spread rapidly throughout the whole camp and verse number 10 says now the rabble who were among them had greedy cravings and the sons of Israel also wept and said who will give us meat to eat now, the, the response of the Lord and Moses was to be expected. Uh, the Lord became angry, and Moses would be deeply troubled. Uh, and so they're, they're saying, who will give us meat to eat? And so Moses pours out his heart to the Lord, verse number 11. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? That you have put the burden of all this people on me. Was it I who conceived all this people? Or did I give birth to them? That you should say to me, carry them in your arms as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers. Where am I to get the meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat so that we may eat. Moses is burdened, he's overwhelmed, and he rightfully turns to the Father, and he says, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do it? And and here, Moses asks God to raise up other leaders in order to help him. The burden was too heavy for him to carry on his own. He could not continue to lead the people in his own strength. And it's at this point that that Moses becomes intense and desperate. It's at this point in desperation that Moses cries out to God, Father, either help me or kill me. Look at verse 14. Because I'm not able to carry all of this people by myself because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal with me this way, please kill me now. If I have found favor in your sight, do not let me see my misery. Here we see how how the Lord met the need of his servant Moses. Look at verse 16. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meetings and have them take their stand there with you. Verse 17. Then I will come down And speak with you there, and I will take away some of the spirit who is upon you, and I will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it by yourself. So the intense pressure and distress of Moses was being relieved by the Lord. The enormous weight of ministry that Moses was sensing was soon to be lifted or at least relieved in his life. The Lord instructed him to bring the 70 elders to the tent of meeting. There God promised to anoint those elders with his spirit, the same spirit in which was anointing Moses. And so the elders would now help carry the burden of the people. And he would help, the elders would help Moses deal with the problems of the people. I want you to look at the message of God's judgment that was given uh, to the people by Moses. The people were to sanctify or to consecrate themselves. God is ready to answer their complaint. And so in verse 18, it says, You shall say to the people, Consecrate yourself for tomorrow. You shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month. Then he says, until it comes out of your nose and makes you nauseated. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and you have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So God's response is, God is going to give them meat. Not meat for a day, but meat for a month. They were going to get exactly what they were complaining for and god was going to overwhelm them with his provision of meat in fact they were going to receive so much meat that ultimately they would end up despising it the blessings the overabundance of meat was actually a judgment brought upon the people by god they they simply insisted that they had to have meat And so God was going to give them more meat than they could take. Verse 21 says, but Moses said, the people among whom I am included are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Our flocks and shepherds, I'm sorry, not shepherds to be slaughtered. My bad, that would be disturbing. Our our, our flocks and, and herds to be slaughtered for them so that it'll be sufficient for them or or all the fish of the sea to be caught for them so that it'll be sufficient for them. Moses is shaken, overwhelmed, still confused. Moses is struggling to, to figure out how is it that he's supposed to provide meat for millions of people and, and not just meat for a day, meat for a month. And so the Lord, in verse 23, then the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power too little? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So, so the Lord's power is not too little. If you have the ESV, I think it says the Lord's hand is not too small. In other words, God will do exactly what he says he will do. God has the power and the knowledge to accomplish and carry out exactly what he desires to The promise may be staggering. The promise may seem impossible to us, but nothing is impossible for our God. Notice the obedience of Moses. Verse 24. So Moses went out and he told the people the words of the Lord. He also gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and positioned them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him. And he took away some of the spirit who was upon him and placed them upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. They did not do it, yet they did not do it again. Uh, That's important to to catch that last phrase. Yet they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. Uh, The one of them was named Eldad and and the name of the other, Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. And they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and informed Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the personal servant of Moses from his youth, responded and said, My Lord Moses, restrain them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? If only all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Don't get lost in all of that, what just happened. The Spirit of God was partially taken from moses to be shared with the other 70 leaders and as the spirit was put on those leaders they were enabled with the ability to prophesy to the people to speak a word on behalf of the lord to the people two of those elders didn't go to the tent of meetings like they should have but those two elders still received the spirit of God, and were prophesying in the camp, and when the others heard about these two, they're like, hey, stop that, that's not right. And Moses is like, man, just let it go, don't worry about it, God's got this. God's got this. And so these 70 men prophesied among God's people, and it was a one time experience. Moses proclaimed the Lord's message to the people, he summons the 70 elders to the tent of meeting, and as soon as Moses proved his obedience. The Lord provided through his faithfulness. The Lord spoke with Moses. And the Spirit of God came upon the the 70 elders. And it's evidenced by the fact that the elders prophesied. And don't forget, this is a a once-of-a-kind experience. The elders never prophesied Again. And scripture is clear to point that out. And so, and so now uh, we see that the judgment of God. Uh, God has relieved the burden of ministry from, from Moses, He's extended it to uh, the elders. They spoke on behalf of God. Now the judgment is, is going to come. Verse 31 says Now a wind burst forth from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and, and dropped them beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side. And a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. And the people spent all day, all night, and all the next day, and they gathered the quail. The one who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread it out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. But you notice how a wind drove quail in from the sea. Miraculously, look at how much quail was brought in. Scripture tells us in verse number 31, it was about two cubics deep. Yeah, that's deep. Unless you're like, oh, what's a cubic? Two cubics deep is about three feet tall. That's, that, that's, that's how much. Three feet, 36 inches, that's how much on the ground the quail landed and, and, and was there, available. And, and so he brings and, and, and extends a, a whole day's walk in this direction and in that direction. Does that help you any? What's a day's walk? A day's walk is about 20 miles. 20 miles in this direction, 20 miles in that direction. 20 miles in either direction three feet deep and it says the people gathered quail for for two days and one night now it doesn't say how much they gathered. it does tell us that the least among them gathered 10 homers that's a lot unless you don't know what a homer is and it's not a baseball term either a, a, a homer is about six bushels does that help anyone One person. Six bushels would be the equivalent of about 55 gallons of dry goods. You know the 55-gallon barrels? So imagine the least, the one that gathered the least among them, gathered enough to fill 10 55-gallon barrels of quail. Now, you might like quail. That's a lot of quail no wonder they get to the point of being nauseated by it. Imagine 10 55 gallon barrels of bird meat. With bacon, it might be one thing. It's quail. It's a staggering amount of meat. God provided for them far more than they would ever be able to consume. God overwhelmed them with his provision. And yet you still see the animalistic and savage behavior of the people. They act as gluttons as they gorge themselves and the anger of the Lord burned against them. Back to verse 33. While the meat was still in their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with this very severe plague. So the place was named Kibroth Hadava, because the, there they buried the people who had been greedy. So God's anger was aroused and burned against his people, so much so that he struck them with a severe plague. Before struck them with fire here they're struck with a plague they just received what their flesh has craved and cried out for meat the very thing that they craved and lusted after brought about their own judgment and death so so the place is named kibroth hadava that is hebrew for uh, the grave of cravings that's what that land became known for So then the people depart, and they renew their march to the promised land. Verse 35 says, uh, from the grave of cravings, the people set forth to Hazaroth. And there they remained at Hazaroth. So uh, unfortunately, their hearts are still stubborn as they continue their journey. They're still filled with unbelief. They're still filled with that spirit of criticism. And we see this in the next three chapters. I'm not going to walk through those. Three chapters. Let me just highlight it. Chapter 12, you have Miriam and Aaron both question and criticize the call of Moses. And then chapters 13 and 14, we see the tragic fail and the doom of the people. We see the the, the tragedy that ultimately prevents them from entering into the promised land themselves. so, So all of this to say that God had warned the Israelites back in Exodus chapter 16 that the way, the way that they treated the manna, the way that they treated his miraculous provision in their lives would be a test of obedience to his word. And so in rejecting the manna, Israel ultimately was rejecting the Lord and his plan. And this rebellious attitude invited the judgment of God. And so to make it connect with us. And so it is for us. The way that we treat the Word of God is the way that we treat the Lord Himself. To ignore the Word of God, to treat it carelessly, or to willfully disobey His Word is to reject and to rebel against God. And this rebellious attitude is also an invitation for judgment from God. If you struggle with that, just read Hebrews chapter 12. My encouragement to all of us is for us to, to live with the awareness that this land is not our home. We too, as Christ followers, are on our journey to the promised land. And may we not be filled with the spirit of criticism and complaining against the plan of God or against God's provisions in our lives. In other words, may our lives be marked with faithful obedience. Because make no mistake, obedience matters. It matters greatly. Before I close, I'm going to give you three reasons real fast, I promise. Three reasons why our obedience matters. First of all, our obedience to God proves our love for God. We see this in Scripture in First John chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves the children born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and we follow his commandments, Obedience. Those who are truly born of God will be characterized by a life that seeks to do the will of God and a life that seeks to live in accordance to the Word of God. See, our love for God is expressed in our willing obedience to His plan and His purpose for our lives. Number two, so our obedience to God proves our love for Him, and our obedience to God demonstrates our faithfulness to Him. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 says, by this we know that we have come to know Him. If We keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever follows his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says that he remains in him ought himself also walk just as he walked, just as Jesus walked. So John describes uh, the believer's obedience in a threefold way. He, he, he describes it as keeping his commandments in verse number three. He, he describes it in verse number five as following his word. And then in verse number six, he describes it as walking as he walked. So, so John is emphasizing that those who are genuinely born again will display a life of obedience to the word of God and the will of God. So let me be clear. Obedience to the word of God cannot and does not produce salvation. Right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we can't obey or we can't do certain things in order to earn salvation. No, our salvation is given by the grace of God. Through faith right but faithful obedience to the word of god gives witness to others of the saving faith that we have in christ jesus okay and then finally the last one our obedience to god glorifies him first peter chapter two verse number 12 says keep your behavior excellent among the gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Man, I hope you can see what what he's saying here. He's saying that we're to live godly lives even though we are going to be criticized by evildoers even though we might be unjustly accused of doing something or saying something. He's saying live godly lives. And and when believers who are living godly lives do good deeds, then unbelievers, in seeing those good deeds and inspecting those good deeds, God will use those good deeds to draw and to lead unbelievers to repentance and salvation in and through Jesus Christ. Here, Peter clearly alludes to Matthew chapter 5, verse number 16, when Jesus says to let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds or your good works and glorify God in heaven. So, our obedience matters. With that being said, three questions and I'm done. Question number one, do you love Him, Him being God the Father. Do you love Him? Question two, are you faithful to Him? Is your life marked with faithful obedience to God? And then number three, is God glorified by your words and by your actions? I guess there's four questions. The fourth question would be, What decision or commitment would you need to make right here, right now, to leave in a right, proper relationship with God the Father? I can't answer that for you, but I know that His Spirit can guide you and to lead you to discover what that answer is. The decision will be, will you follow through? Is there a sin that needs to be confessed? Is there a decision that needs to be made? A commitment that needs to be extended? What's the one thing that God would ask of you in this moment before we leave this place? Father, I pray that you'll help us. Help us not to be rushed to get in and to get out and to be done. But Father, may you use your word today to guide us, to to convict us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to correct us. God, may we make decisions in this moment that truly honor you. We ask that you be glorified in this time of invitation, Father. We ask that as your spirit moves among us, that we would respond properly. God, may each and every one of us make a commitment to love you, to be faithful to you, and to seek to do good deeds.